My research is very emotional to me. My mum had a cardiovascular disease starting from the age of 35. Sound Minds Radio, getting you behind the research and ideas in contemporary life. This episode produced by Michael Schubert. Sound Minds Radio, part of the Community Radio Network. Soundminds.com.au Our research focus all started with mum. My whole research was sort of kick-started, if, if you want to call it that way, because of my mum. My mum was a doctor. My dad's a doctor. Mum had a cardiovascular disease starting from the age of 35. So she was always on aspirin, all the time on blood thinning agents because she was she was having cardiovascular disease. She had a bypass when she was 36. She got a foot amputated because of diabetes when she was 45. And then she passed away two years ago. She was only 57 then. I set off on a journey to find a, a natural, safe, efficient, and at the same time, very less sensitivity, the natural alternative to currently used therapeutics. That's Abhishek Santakumar, research into cardioprotective natural therapeutics. And it all started with energy drinks, which contain the antioxidants taurine and caffeine. There was a 16-year-old Perth boy who who died drinking a shot of uh, vodka with an energy drink. That was all all very fascinating, but I wanted to see it is a natural compound. I want to see whether it does have any antithrombotic benefits at all at a very low level. So I started off with that, and I saw that very low levels of these um, actually was antithrombotic. It was all revolved around cardiovascular diseases. If it can act as a complementary therapeutic to currently used um, conventional drugs, um, we can reduce the dosage of currently used drugs and at the same time um, supplement natural diet with, with such pigments and such natural compounds, which has the same effect as, as what aspirin does or as what clopidogrel does. So each of these drugs have separate pathways and these separate pathways is something which I intend to target. I slowly started exploring different opportunities and different metabolic pathways associated with pigmented compounds. And I found that anthocyanin was was doing a lot of good things, which I wanted it to do. And that's the novelty in in my research, because I'm going on to the specific metabolic pathways associated and trying to compare that with conventional therapeutics. Anthocyanins are water-soluble pigments found in plants. And they're a class of compounds called flavonoids. But there's more to them than that. What do they do? And how do they do it? And why is Abhishek interested in them? It's a structure and the functional groups associated with the anthocyanin. So they have a a cyclic structure with a A, B and a C ring. I don't want to dwell too much into detail, but it's a functional group in the structure, which which we think is, is a scavenger of these free radicals. Let's just pause here for a quick science detour. Free radicals are atoms or groups of atoms with an odd number of electrons. They form when oxygen reacts with some molecules. And that would be the end of the story. Except, due to the odd or unpaired electron, they're very reactive, starting a kind of chain reaction. And they can start reacting with important parts of our cells, like the DNA or the cell membranes, which is not good. There are, however, compounds like antioxidants, which safely interact with these free radicals and stop the chain reaction before the damage is done. And here's where it gets interesting. Our body doesn't make them. So we have to find a dietary source. Vitamin E, ascorbic acid or vitamin C, and a range of pigments like beta-carotene and the anthocyanins, 
which is where we hand the story back to Abhishek. So if there's a free radical lurking around, if there's increased levels um, in plasma, increased levels of anthocyanin in plasma due to the intake of high anthocyanin, they have the ability to, to mop up these free radicals, um, you know, um, like blueberries, like bilberries. So anything with color will have anthocyanins and these anthocyanins can, can try and mop up these free radicals causing that metabolic damage. And that's where we think um, targets our specific pathway. When I was doing my PhD, we were approached by CSRO. They were developing this plum, which had eight times more antioxidant content than any of the plum. They wanted to add value to that product. It was supposedly a year-round product. They thought had a lot of health beneficial properties because of the increased antioxidant content. We were the first to delve into potential of, of the plum having beneficial properties. My interest was anthocyanin, so because I set out on a journey to find a natural compound, a polyphenolic compound, or or a protein, or or whatever else, which can be a natural dietary therapeutic compound to antithrombosis. So it was it was more not about the plum, but it, it was more about compound, um, which interested me. The plum in question is known as the Queen Garnet Plum, a cultivar of the Japanese plum developed to produce a high anthocyanin content. So when it comes to anthocyanins, how much is enough? There's only so much you can boost. It's not like you take 10 capsules and it's going to severely increase your antioxidant content in your bloodstream. It's never like that. So there's only so much plasma can absorb and the others that excrete. Key is continual maintenance of the antioxidant levels in ceramoplasma to render the therapeutic effect. That's what I believed in. It's called the CMAX, so the maximum concentration in serum or plasma which needs to be maintained to render the health beneficial properties and and as i said there's only so much a person can eat if i was to give the same extract in terms of volumes of blueberries and bilberries people might get bored quickly so you can't eat two kilos of blueberries or bilberries every day as opposed to just popping a pill which is completely natural if it can render the same health beneficial properties it's going to be great for the consumer for me, one of the key questions is whether the action of the natural product in our body is the same as an extract of the plant concentrated into a supplement. We've tried the natural product and we've also tried the extract. So in a recent publication by, by us, we've, we've extracted a capsule of anthocyanin. So it was an extract from bilberries and blueberries. This was given to us by a company uh, in Norway. They have uh, the FDA approval in selling these products as a potential functional food, as a capsule, as a supplement. So we had those capsules donated to us by, by the company in Norway as an extract from blueberries and bilberries. And as you might know, blueberries and bilberries have a really high anthocyanin content. Obviously, when, when this was given to volunteers, and especially these were obese uh, and overweight volunteers, we saw saw that it, it targeted specific thrombotic pathways and reduced the risk of cardiovascular diseases significantly. Be it in an extract form or a full product, um, it is doing the trick to what we are measuring. But in saying that, we have not compared the same product from two different types. So say the actual product and the extract, we haven't compared that, but there's also a known fact that processing actually affects the anthocyanin content. Processing affects the polyphenol content. So if it's heated up or cooled down or rapidly cooled down, they do lose some bioactivity. The question then becomes, how does science get to the supermarket? How do you educate the motivated or interested consumer? And how do they educate themselves? 
people, more and more people actually see researchers working on products and then they will go and pick up the product. So for example, we're working on sorghum right now. We see that wheat bakes produce wheat bakes, not just with wheat, but with sorghum and several other pulses and grains in it, which have functional properties. So I actually went and bought that myself. I know that sorghum has functional properties. And so I know the science behind it. So I went and bought that instead of a normal wheat bix. Media is the biggest way to promote it the right way. You can promote it anyway, but promoting it the right way through science, in my opinion, because I'm a scientist, is the best way to reach the consumers. Now we're about to enter the labyrinth of marketing and scientific terminology. Superfoods, functional foods, fads and fiction. What's a researcher to do and what, prey is a consumer to think? The, the plum which I researched on was called a super plum. It was marketed as a super plum. You will see that Seven News and Nine News who interviewed me called it a super plum. Nutrafruit, who the, the people who marketed it, called, called it a super plum. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a very fancy term, but... Of course, there had to be a but. But the mode of these uh, in the market, it'll sort of throw the consumer off. Now everything is super. Which one do I take? I think evidence-based consumer intake could be more valid. <laughs> if science from a particular research center has proven, okay, you know, take this grain, take this pulse, it's, it's good for you. It, it has to reach the, the consumer somehow, uh, rather than just calling it super. So for example, I did see a, a, a product would say, eat this particular extract because researchers from this, this, and this institute or whatever have found and reference to whatever they found is, is something which, which is useful. And it's not just being marketed as a superfood. I could just make a cardboard pulp coated with anthocyanin and ask people to eat it and I can call it superfood and, and it'll be marketed and I'll make a lot of money. But it's about what's the truth, what's the science behind it? And the science behind it is pretty important. So that's how we as a group try and promote the research we do and promote the product we think is functional and has a lot of value by showing science. We project science, we project what we do. Okay, we've dealt with superfoods. When everything is a superfood, nothing is a superfood. But there is another more meaningful term emerging in the scientific and nutritional narrative. Functional food is something which has health beneficial functional properties. So. It's not something which is a macronutrient or not just a micronutrient. So macronutrients are carbohydrates, fats, proteins, and micronutrients are vitamins and minerals. Not just containing those, but containing those and also has a functional beneficial properties. It alters the physiology in a favorable way, and that's called a functional food. Of course, there is also the real problem of clinical trials testing a substance inside the body versus the test tube. If it was... An in vitro study, so if, if, the, if the study happens in a test tube and we add extracts of polyphenols into the test tube and say, yep, it has a lot of antiplatelet therapeutics or it's cardioprotective or it's got an antiplatelet potential, yes, it does, but is it physiologically relevant? And that's the biggest question the journal reviewers ask, and I would ask it when I'm reviewing papers. We've wound our way back to a core issue. How does the research get to a motivated consumer? And how does the consumer assess the quality of the research? I see three types of consumers. 
One are people who are, are willing to pay thousands of dollars if that particular food is called a superfood or a functional food or a health food. There's another group of people who say, nah, this is, this is nothing. I eat a normal balanced diet. I'm going to stay healthy. There's a third group of people where they would buy the superfood if it's cheap and only if it's cheap. And there's a fourth one who don't care about anything else. Like I, they would just go buy stuff which are not healthy. To get this out to the consumer, I see a lot of roadblock. Researcher X can say something and the media can completely interpret it in a completely wrong way and publish it in a wrong way. Uh, and that media out output will still stay in Google. So if me as a consumer go and type things about product X and I see this saying, oh, researchers said that, okay, that must be true. That might not actually be true. So research which has evidence in terms of scientific peer-reviewed publication is the way for consumers to actually understand that the research has been done. It is very complicated, so you can't expect the public day-to-day -day person to go on to Google Scholar or PubMed and search databases whether this research is true, read papers. It's very difficult. But I would recommend if a consumer thinks about, okay, is rice, colored rice good for me or not? Okay, let me go to Google Scholar. So instead of going to Google, you can go to Google Scholar, which is a scholarly database of, of published information only. These are peer-reviewed. They cannot be just accepted journals. They have to be peer-reviewed. There's an editor, please review your work and say, no, this is right. Yes, this is right. No, what you're talking about is, is absolutely wrong but just go to Google Scholar, they will find the papers and they can read abstracts of those papers, which is actually valid information. The language might be a little bit complicated than a media report, for example, but I would recommend Google Scholar. Um, that's what I would do. So now you know. Head over to Google Scholar, take the time, inform yourself. And as for Abhishek, my, my aim is, is the compounds in it uh, and the, the foods associated with it and consumption of those foods. If it does have health beneficial properties, I'm a very happy researcher. You've been listening to another episode from Sound Minds Radio, produced for the Community Radio Network. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or visit our website, soundminds.com.au. Our research focus all started with mum. My whole research was sort of kick-started, if, if you want to call it that way, because of my mum.